It's Thursday, September 24th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A grand jury in Kentucky has charged former Louisville police detective Brett Hankison with three counts of wanton endangerment in the case of Breonna Taylor, who was killed by police fire in March. The charges were related to other circumstances and not directly to the death of Breonna herself. Other officers involved in the incident were also not charged. Marissa Ayati, national reporter for The Washington Post, joins us for the latest developments in Breonna Taylor's case. Next, a look back at the early days of the pandemic and the first nursing home outbreak at the Life Care Center of Kirkland in Washington. 46 people died there, but did those deaths have to happen? The way that COVID-19 tore through the facility is a cautionary tale for the way we operate nursing homes in the U.S. There were failures at many steps during the way, all while residents and workers saw some of their friends get sick and die. Katie Engelhart, contributor to California Sunday Magazine, spent months investigating what happened and joins us for how it all played out. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. If you don't have uh, a situation where there are charges brought against those cops, then you don't start the process, the real process towards justice for Breonna Taylor. Joining us now is Marissa Ayati, national reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Marissa. Sure. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about all the new things we learned out of the Breonna Taylor case. A grand jury has indicted Officer Brett Hankison for three counts of wanton endangerment for firing shots blindly into neighboring apartments of Breonna Taylor. There were no charges, murder charges or anything brought forth specifically with regards to Breonna Taylor. The other officers that were involved at the scene that day, there were no charges filed against them. Marissa, tell us what we learned from the grand jury and then also what we learned from the Kentucky Attorney General, Daniel Cameron. So the grand jury indicted one of the three officers who fired their weapons that night. It was Officer Brett Hankison, and they indicted him on three charges of wanton endangerment. And that is for shots that went into a neighboring apartment, not for shots that struck Taylor. So Attorney General Daniel Cameron said that he does not believe any of Hankison's shots hit Taylor directly, that those shots came from the other two officers on scene, Miles Cosgrove and Jonathan Mattingly. But he says that those officers were justified in firing their guns because Brianna Taylor's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, shot first. So Kenneth Walker has said that he did not know that the police were law enforcement when they arrived, that he thought that they were intruders, and he fired one shot, hitting one of the officers in the leg. What do we know about the boyfriend of Breonna Taylor? Because he said that he didn't hear the officers identify themselves. He thought they were intruders. That's why he fired the shot. But I guess there was a witness that came forward saying that they did hear the officers identify themselves. So whether or not officers identify themselves is still in dispute. The officers obtained a no-knock warrant, which means that they legally did not have to announce themselves. But Attorney General Cameron said today they did, in fact, announce themselves anyway. And he's basing that on statements from the officers themselves, as well as from one witness. A reporter at the press conference brought up the fact that several news outlets have talked with other neighbors and have found very few, possibly only one witness who said that they did hear an announcement, that many others have said that there wasn't one. And Attorney General Cameron essentially said that the one witness saying that they heard something was sufficient for the grand jury to believe that an announcement was made. 
the charges as a felony punishable by fines and up to five years in prison in Kentucky. So there's three charges, possibility of up to 15 years for Officer Brett Hankison. We'll see how that ends up going. But the attorney general did say that he doesn't think there will be any more charges brought in this case. So he does not expect to bring any more criminal charges, but it is important to remember that the FBI is also investigating this case and they're looking at it through a lens of potential civil rights violations. So they could take action on their end or bring federal charges. But in terms of Attorney General Cameron and state level prosecution, it it sounds like he has closed the door on that. In the past week, Breonna Taylor's family did settle a wrongful death lawsuit against Louisville for $12 million dollars. There was also going to be some police reforms included in all of that. What what do we know about that? There are a few reforms that are specific to how search warrants are carried out, like the fact that police commanders now have to approve all warrants before they go to a judge for approval. And there is a rule about at least two officers having body cameras turned on when they are counting money that has been seized during an investigation There's some other elements that are not directly related to search warrants, like officers getting paid time to do community service and getting incentives to live in certain low-income areas of Louisville, things that the city and Taylor's family presumably believe will strengthen trust between city residents and the department. Going back to Breonna Taylor's boyfriend, what do we know about why they were obtaining that warrant? My understanding is that they didn't really find any drugs that were being trafficked or anything like that in the apartment. The gun that he owned was legally obtained. What do we know about what happened to him? Police were at Breonna Taylor's apartment that night because they say they believed that she was connected to drug activity being conducted by her ex-boyfriend. So not the person she was living with, not the person who fired at officers, but somebody else entirely who lived elsewhere. And her boyfriend, who she lived with, Kenneth Walker, he did not have any criminal charges. He owned the gun legally, and he says that he fired at officers because he believed that they were intruders. Where do we go from here? Because the Louisville mayor, Greg Fisher, declared a state of emergency there. He issued a curfew starting at 9 p.m. That goes until 6.30 a.m. for the next few days. Obviously, we've already seen some protests gathered. We're going to see if anything comes out of any of the protests or anything like that. But what other recourses do the family have at this point? The family and protesters could continue pushing the Louisville Police Department to fire the other two officers who shot their weapons that night, the two that are still on staff, Officers Cosgrove and Mattingly. There have also been calls to look into or potentially discipline the officers who were involved in obtaining the search warrant for the apartment. So I think that those could potentially be the next direction of of protesters, but I think that also just remains to be seen. Marissa Ayati, national reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure, thank you. And there are no doctors available. The nursing home does not have a backup physician available and cannot find one. So days pass in which residents are dying and no doctor is on staff to treat them. This is a failure of the nursing home. The nursing home has been fined for a number of violations, over $600,000. Joining us now is Katie Engelhart, contributor to California Sunday Magazine. Thanks for joining us, Katie. Thanks for having me. 
you wrote a piece for the California Sunday Magazine looking at the Life Care Center of Kirkland in Washington. It was the first COVID hotspot in the United States. It was a nursing home facility. 46 people died there that were residents or, or staff and all. And you spent months investigating this. You wrote a, a huge comprehensive piece on this. It focuses on the story of two women who lived in the nursing home. They lived in side-by-side beds in room 10 there. One of them died. The other one lived. One of their daughters is suing the nursing home facility. The other uh, daughter of the other woman said they maybe did everything they could do given the circumstances. But it really just underscores how unprepared we were as a country, how unprepared nursing home facilities across the country, because the majority of COVID-19 deaths have occurred in nursing home facilities. Obviously, these Mm -hmm. are our most vulnerable, our our oldest citizens. It is an incredible story that you really wrote on this. So start us off. Tell us what happened there at the Life Care Center of Kirkland. Well, as you said, you know, the story is focusing on two women, Helen and Twyla, who lived in room 10 of the Life Care Center in Kirkland, Washington. And we've heard a lot about nursing home deaths during COVID. Nursing home Residents account for a teeny fraction of 1% of the population, and still they make up more than a quarter of total COVID deaths. So when one of the daughters, Twyla Morin's daughter, Debbie, announced that she was suing the nursing home, I really wanted to look at this issue of blame. To what extent was the Life Care Center responsible for these deaths? And to what extent was these deaths just inevitable when the virus got inside the building? Because we know it targets older populations. And what I found was a sort of more confusing mix of things. Federal investigators have found that the Life Care Center, the nursing home, made pretty considerable errors in its handling of the pandemic. But what I found kind of around those failures were failures by local hospitals, county, state, and federal officials. I can give you one example. Early on in the pandemic, residents start dying at the Life Care Center, and Life Care's doctor goes out sick. He starts experiencing symptoms. He can no longer come in. Well, now we're in the middle of a pandemic at a nursing home and there are no doctors available. The nursing home does not have a backup physician available and cannot find one. So days pass in which residents are dying and no doctor is on staff to treat them. This is a failure of the nursing home. The nursing home has been fined for a number of violations, over $600,000. But then I started to kind of tease apart, well, who knew that there wasn't a doctor in the facility? What I found was that county officials had kind of asked around at local hospitals, hey, can anyone else fill in at life care? No one stepped forward. The county itself didn't send doctors on site for several days. Also, officials of the Department of Health in Washington and the federal government at the Centers for Medicare Services, they all knew that there was no doctor at life care and no one was able to come up with a doctor. So we see these failures at different levels. But even beyond that, just playing with the same example of the missing doctor, Basically, there aren't requirements that nursing homes have backup physicians on staff or kind of a secondary person who's there to look at residents. A doctor can be basically working solo in a nursing home without much oversight at all. In it, you have low levels of staffers because they started getting sick, too. And uh, a lot of them were calling out. They were working on a skeleton crew. And there's moments that, you, you know, you write in the story where they're just at their wits end. They don't know what to do. They're trying to answer calls from family members, but at the same time, they're like, hey, I got to go. I got to make a 911 call to get a resident out of here. It was like a fire the whole time. 
if we consider the context, you know, this is at a moment in time where we're really not taking COVID seriously. And, you know, it seems to be sort of a minor threat to the United States. Inside this nursing home, we have residents who aren't being fed regularly, not being bathed regularly, who are being left unattended for long stretches of time. I spoke with a doctor who has experienced treating Ebola patients in West Africa, and he said that when he got to the nursing home several weeks later as, as part of a relief effort, he realized it was a humanitarian mission, not unlike the ones he's participated in abroad. But you're right, the low-level staff were absolutely strapped. They were going out sick. The ones that were there were doing the best that they could. Every single staff member who I spoke to, either on or off the record, cried a lot while we were on the phone together. So I think, you know, it's clear that the staff really suffered. And I think, you know, the lack of preparedness was clear sort of at every level. I did a very haunting interview with Dr. Stephen Morris at the Harvard Reed Medical Center. He's part of what's called disaster medical control for King County. So he helps kind of move patients around when there's an emergency. And he said to me, you know, we weren't really looking at nursing homes. He said he was working on plans to deal with other vulnerable populations like homeless populations. And it didn't really strike him that this was something that was going to affect nursing homes disproportionately, even though the data from China was already suggesting that it would. And I think we see this at every level. You know, I looked at a Washington state kind of a pandemic preparedness exercise that was done a few years ago. A big report was written. I found that nursing homes were rarely mentioned in this big 90-page report. And when they were mentioned, it was kind of an offhand reference as part of a bigger list of different kinds of healthcare facilities. By contrast, that state plan had several sections devoted to very precise requirements for state veterinarians. So I think that gives you a good sense for how much nursing homes are kind of on the minds of public officials. What do we know about how the coronavirus first infiltrated there at the life care center? And what was, do we know, you know, we we hear a lot about super spreader events and whatnot. Do we know Mm -hmm. if there was a specific moment that really kind of released the coronavirus throughout the nursing home there? We don't. And there's no sort of patient zero at the nursing home. What we do know from other facilities is that in some cases, you know, it's staff that brought the virus into facilities. What's really important to know is that low-level nursing assistants make incredibly low wages and are usually working without benefits, which means that they often work multiple jobs at multiple facilities to make ends meet. And they're likely to go to work sometimes when they're sick because they need to make rent payments and they're not being offered paid sick leave. So we're finding that the way that staff are treated is really closely connected to resident welfare. If staff are coming in sick, residents are going to suffer. And frankly, we're paying attention to those things now because it's coronavirus. But it's really got me thinking like, gosh, a lot of elderly people die of influenza every year. How many of those deaths were preventable if we were just better about infection control in these facilities? Tell me a little bit about Mm -hmm. testing, because testing is an issue around the country, obviously. But in the beginning there at the nursing home, they requested a bunch of tests. They gave them like half or less than half of what they needed to test, even just the residents. Mm -hmm. You know, staffers were another story. It's tough with tests. You know, there are some things that were easy for me to understand, like at the beginning, there being just a general shortage of tests. That's part of, you know, much bigger story and some of it unique to the United States. But other aspects of the testing story at LifeCare are harder for me to understand. I spoke to several staff members who worked in the nursing home for months. We're talking five, six, seven days a week. They were never tested. They never once got tested for COVID during that time. 
And the nursing home would have known by then that staff members can be asymptomatic and still be spreading the virus. So that's a really big problem. And, you know, I think now, actually, the the testing issue gets back at this larger point of accountability. You know, at the beginning, there was a shortage of tests and the government just didn't have them. But now who should really be responsible for getting the tests? And the nursing home industry will say these tests are really expensive and we need government to provide them for us. And the state should be testing residents for free. But a lot of kind of industry critics will say, no, a lot of these nursing homes, they're making a lot of money and they should be buying their own tests. So even now, I think there's a lot of kind of punting of responsibility for what to do. And and still in about half of states, nursing home staff aren't able to test with the regularity that's recommended by the CDC. This is such a detailed and comprehensive story, and it's just tough to get to every angle in this one mm-hmm. interview here. But there was an inspection done about how you know everything went through there. This was done by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They yeah. went to evaluate the handling of the outbreak. What was the result of that report? I should say, you know, that the nursing home is currently appealing these findings, but the nursing home was found to have made errors which placed residents in what's called immediate jeopardy. And the nursing home was fined around $600,000 for those errors. And shortly after that report, of course, is when family members start talking about potential wrongful death litigation against the nursing home. And this is really important because right now the industry is basically fighting to make sure that lawsuits like the one that's currently pending against life care don't happen. So we've seen in a lot of states, industry groups lobbying to get states to pass immunity legislation, meaning that families can never sue for anything related to coronavirus. And the industry is also pushing the federal government to do the same. So I think that question of accountability is going to be a big one in the kind of months ahead. And critics will say it's easy to blame a single facility. It's possible to have a lawsuit against a nursing home, much more complicated if you're trying to bring in a range of government actors who have underregulated nursing homes for a really long time. As I mentioned at the beginning, you spent months investigating this. This overall was really a story about two women there, Twyla and Helen, and, and kind of how they experienced this almost uh, at the Life Care Center of Kirkland, Washington. Just tell us the top takeaway, I guess, from looking into this and, and seeing the handling of all this. What could you say is the top takeaway from all this? What surprised me most was just how little nursing homes are regulated in some areas and how little we know about what goes on in nursing homes, even though at any given time around 1.4 million Americans, most of them elderly or people with disabilities, are living in a nursing home. So what I found, for instance, is that the nursing home industry is largely made up of private companies. 70% of nursing homes are for-profit. Many of them are backed by private equity groups. And those companies receive billions of dollars every year in public money. Still, they don't even need to publish financial statements that are available to residents or family members. They don't need to really reveal much about who they're trading with and who's providing services. And so what I'm finding is that there's just a huge amount of underregulation that has really contributed to some of the issues like understaffing that have affected us during COVID. Katie Engelhart, contributor to California Sunday Magazine. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.